0: So, you know, usually I say I get up here and freak out and say we have a lot to do today. We don't have a whole lot of ground to cover today, so I'm going to take some time today on some things and, and not feel rushed. Um, we're going to be in chapter 3 of 1 John. We're not going to be in Genesis. Verses 16 through 28. Uh, and remember last week, we drew a little bit on Genesis. And then last week and the week before, I believe, we were covering... Uh, John's interaction with the farewell discourse by Jesus, chapters 13 through 16 of John's gospel. Like I said, a lot of 1 John is like a commentary on John in a lot of ways. And then 2 John remembers the Cliff's Notes for those of you that didn't read in time for the big test on 1 John. Um, uh, So what I want to actually do is I want to read the chunk of the gospel of john you don't need to turn there necessarily if you want to it's going to be john 15 12 through 15 then we're going to read first john 3 through sixteen, three sixteen through 18 and then we are going to kind of highlight what what john's doing here which is discussing this kind of the radical nature of love as it is demonstrated for the believer and as it's expected of the believer so uh john 15 12 through 15 this is jesus talking to his disciples Um, Again, this is the farewell discourse. So this is like his final download of the most important things. And he covers a lot of stuff here. So, but this is just one chunk. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Um, and then we'll read 1 John, the sort of expansion of this idea. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love, sorry, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Uh, that last verse there, by the way, that might be, it's like on the short list of my favorite verses in the Bible. It is kind of a life verse for me. So I was really excited to get to teach on this. Um, so what I want to do in light of of John's passage there, I want to unpack four descriptives that we can put on love, either or both as Christ loved us or as we love the brothers. Uh, And I want to start by highlighting Christ's love for us because that's where John starts. Uh, And this is this first one. I also went alliterative. So sometimes we like to do that to organize ideas. I had like three alliterative ideas. And so I kind of forced this fourth one, which is actually the first one. So if it feels a little forced, I'll have to describe immoderate. Love is immoderate. And what I mean by immoderate here is not measured out or governed in any way. So the the throttle on true love is all the way open, is the best way to describe it. So you see, uh, John's connecting Jesus's sacrificial death with his teaching on sacrificial death in John 15, with Jesus's teaching. And it's like a really easy connect the dots puzzle that John's doing here. He's like, just in case you weren't following Jesus said, greater love has, anyone, has no man than this, that he lay down his life for my friends. You are my friends. And it's like for anybody who wasn't picking up what he was putting down, he's like, Jesus laid down his life for us. So that is the, that's the first part. of That's the immoderate nature of love. What I mean by immoderate here is it's the most that Jesus could give. Um, the idea that, that Jesus came and didn't love in a measured partial way he didn 't um, it wasn 't like he was counting up his change to figure out like the exact requirement of the bill. Uh, this was a a keep the change kind of love it's a it 's an abundant, generous love uh, christ didn 't give stuff he gave his life he died for us, and that feels like a really like that 's one of those truths that when we 're in church. We hear that a lot. We hear Jesus died for us. Christ gave his life for us. We hear that ideally every week. Um, and the problem with that is that it can become, we can become kind of inoculated to it. We just hear it and we hear it and we hear it and we hear it and we don't really think about the implications of it and the size of it. I mean, Jesus just coming from heaven to earth, by the way, from eternal glory to being a a baby in the womb is an infinite descent in its own. But then for Christ to die uh, completes that descent, if you will. Um, and I also want to point out something here. The idea that that Jesus gave his life for us, if we think about it for a second, has two really big implications. Um, so the first one is that if he laid down his life for us, that means that our lives were at risk. Uh, we had a payment to make. So we... I can't cover the bill for you if we went to a restaurant if you didn't order anything. Um, I don't, I can't pay for you if you don't have something demanded of you. So the idea that Jesus gave his life for us, um, you know, if, if Mr. Anton and I went to lunch and he ordered like the most expensive thing on the menu, which seems like the least likely thing that he would do, but he ordered some like $35 filet. Um, I couldn't say... I, that I could say, hey, I'll cover your, your bill. But if he just sat there and got a water, which I think was more like he would do, um, I couldn't say, hey, I'll pay, because there's nothing demanded of him. He'd be like, whatever, dude. Um, you can or you cannot. I'm leaving. Um, so the fact that our lives were demanded of us is implicit in the fact that Christ gave his life for us, that he made a payment for us in in this currency of life, if you will. The other thing that it carries in it, though, is that Again, Mr. Anton and I go to lunch, and we both get a steak. And I say, you know, the bill comes to $50. And I say, I'll leave $50. That way you're covered, Anton. That doesn't work because I have a bill to pay. I can't. I'd have to pay twice as much. The idea that Jesus is able to give his life for us, which is, you know, it's a, a single currency. We each have one of them. Uh, unless you're a cat. Um, we each have one of them. And Jesus can only give his life for us if his life isn't demanded of him. So Christ's holiness and perfection and righteousness is implicit in the, in the very reality that he gave his life for us. He had an extra life to give, if that makes sense. He he didn't need to pay this one. Um, and that's a pretty massive, like, just the idea. So every time you hear Christ died for us, Christ died for us, you're going to hear it a lot. Uh, bear in mind that what that means is that Christ was perfectly holy and did not need to die. We were fully sinful and needed to die, and he gave his life paying ours because he essentially didn't need to die. Does that make sense? Cool. Um, Yeah, and and the idea that he didn't, that there's not a request, an ask of, of what he needed to pay, but the full paying out. Remember last week we talked about Cain and Abel, and we talked about how Cain demanded Abel's life to cover his guilt, and I was talking about how Christ gave his life to cover our guilt. Um, that's an intentional contrast that John is making here. So, John sets up Cain, A, to show us how not to love our brothers, um, but also to show the difference between Cain and Christ. That Christ gives his life perfectly for us while Cain demands life. And I I really liked the way that John Stott, in his commentary on this, kind of summarized this and crystallized it. I'm getting very... Um, Stott writes... As Cain, as Cain has been given as the extreme as the, sorry try again as Cain has been given as the supreme example of hate, Christ is presented as the supreme example of love a person 's life is his most precious possession, consequently, to rob him of it is the greatest sin we can commit against him, while to give one 's own life on his behalf is the greatest possible expression of love for him that 's what Jesus says, right. This then is the ultimate contrast. Cain's hatred issued in murder, Christ's love in self-sacrifice. So by la- this, this transitional phrase here about Christ laying his down, laying down his life, puts a bow on the story of Cain and moves into our application going forward. Um, that brings us to our second point, which is love is imitative. Love is imitative. Um, John says that Christ laid down his life for us and we should lay down our lives for our brothers. Uh, This brings an interesting debate that smart people have been having for a couple thousand years now about the nature of Christ's death. Or sometimes you hear it called the nature of the atonement. And it is a question of whether the atonement is substitutionary or exemplary. Have y'all heard these terms before? substitutionary or or exemplary you might hear it called christus exemplar because people like latin sometimes um and the question is did christ die as our substitute or to serve as an example to be imitated um and i think we can see in this one verse uh that for john this dichotomy doesn't make any sense and if we think about it for a second and we will uh it doesn't make any sense it's a it's a nonsensical question i think um John affirms both positions in the same verse. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. There's a very clearly substitutionary element there, and then this and here is like a consequential and. It's like and therefore. There's a a relationship between. It's not two unrelated clauses, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. These ideas are sometimes presented as um, mutually exclusive or at odds with each other, but but they're really mutually supportive. It's only because Christ gave his life for us that we're able to give our lives for others, uh, that we can truly love our brothers, that we even have brothers to love, if you want to think about it that way. Um, His perfect example is our perfect blueprint. So it's like, oh, that's what love is supposed to look like. I'm supposed to lay down my life for my brothers. And if you think about it logically, it only makes sense because, all right, if Christ's death for us, as some would maintain, is purely an example to us, the question we need to ask is, what's the example? Like, what's an example of? well, that you should lay down your life for other people. But you just said that it wasn't a substitute for me. He didn't lay down his life for me. He laid down as an example to lay down my life for others. We have to have a real example to follow. And the example that we're following is substitutionary love. It's sacrificial, costly, giving of ourselves, suffering at our own expense for the benefit of others. If Christ didn't do that for us, then... The example is just to suffer pointless suffering. Does that make sense? Like there has to be a, a benefit in this love if we're called to to model it and not just to be... You see some of these cultures where they'll like reenact the crucifixion. It's really weird. Um, and people will hang themselves on crosses and stuff uh, for days. And in a way, it's a pointless form of suffering. It doesn't benefit anybody. What John's saying here is, Christ gave his love for us he his life for us he suffered an agonizing death so that we could be benefit beneficiaries of his love and the point is, you should suffer for others, you should imitate this love self sacrificially um, so i think I think that makes clear for us that that the question it 's like i said nonsensical i you guys may remember um, Robert Law. I quoted him a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago at this point in time. He's got a great commentary written in the, like the early 1900s, and it's, it's just beautifully written, honestly. And I love the way he describes this. He says, and love must reproduce in us, must, right? This is a necessary thing. It's almost like uh, a necessary reaction, And love must reproduce in us what it was and did in him. If we have, so to say, a drop of the blood of Christ in our veins, we are under bond and pledge whenever the call comes to us to manifest our love in the same way of uttermost sacrifice. For though to think of Christ's love to us and then to think after what fashion it may be repeated in our relations to our fellow men is to compare the infinite with the infinitesimal, The sun with a flickering candle. Yet as light is light, whether in the candle or the sun, as it has the same properties and the same laws of action, so love is love, whether in Christ or in us. Our lives must exhibit the same properties, obey the same spiritual laws, must be built upon the same ground plan as that life of which the cross was the perfect expression. This is the test of our union with him and of our divine sonship sonship in him. So as I have in your notes there, Christ's love is more than exemplary, but it is not less than exemplary. Christ died as our substitute, but our response to that is to follow his example, necessarily, because part... (laughs) One facet of the gospel is this union with Christ idea that we talked about. We are subsumed into him. And we walk in the manner worthy of the calling of one who is, is in Christ. We, we absorb his character imperfectly because we're in sinful bodies. But we walk in his ways. We can't not do it. It is a natural outgrowth. We won't, as we discussed last week, two weeks ago, it's all a blur. Um, we won't do it perfectly. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we won't see growth in love. And we'll talk in, in the next couple of sections I do here about what that that um, following in Christ's example looks like. Y'all remember Aaron talked about the same idea that Robert Law talks about here in his sermon a few weeks ago on holiness. He actually used the same imagery. I think his was, it was the sun versus, I don't remember what light he was talking about. Some little light that he had. Um, But the idea that Christ, that God's holiness, it's like a categorically different thing. And I talked about that last week, how God's love isn't just better than our love. It's, it's in a way categorically different. It's orders of magnitude bigger. Um, at the same time, we are made in his image and we who are called into union with Christ have that image being constantly reformed. And that little flickering candle, as compared to the giant sun, um, it still makes light right it still makes light your love can still make light in people's lives Uh, so don't feel like god's just gonna love people like he uses you that's that's part of the idea of being in the image of god this idea that in the image of god carries uh this idea of kings that would build statues of themselves to mark their territory god filled the earth with his people to mark his territory with little statues of him. If you'll allow me to a little bit of an indulgence with that imagery, he put pictures of himself in the world. And that picture was marred by sin and it's being reformed. And as we walk in love for brother, that image gets a little bit more clarified and shines a little brighter. And that's pretty cool. I think, um, so was Christ's uh, love substitutionary or was it exemplary? Yes. All right. Moving on. Love is individual. So you'll notice a shift in, uh, in John's language as he goes from verse 16 to 17. He talks about we should love the brothers, right? As Christ loved us. Give his life for us. We should give our lives for the brothers. But in verse 17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Do you all see the difference in language here? John has gone from plural to singular. Um, <laughs> And I envision like reading the letter, this is the point, because these letters would be read out loud, almost like a sermon in front of a congregation. This is the point where the congregation goes from amening to looking around nervously. Um, Because God is talking about individuals and their material possessions. Um, It is much easier to love everyone than it is to love someone. Uh, (laughs) uh, Y'all know that's true. Loving everyone is theoretical. How many of y'all love everybody? Y'all love everybody? I love everybody. How many of y'all love that person? Right? Um, loving someone is practical. Loving everyone's theoretical. Loving someone is practical. Um, loving everyone, generally speaking, is free. It doesn't cost me anything to love everybody. I just love everybody. I love everybody. Um, loving someone is costly. Uh, we somehow know (laughs) that everyone has sin. We have good theology here. Everyone has sin. Someone has that sin, quite possibly against me. So for me to love them is a much more costly uh, interaction, exchange, than to simply love them with this vague idea of God's love for everybody. Um. I used to sing at a restaurant. It's a weird job. Um, I would much rather sing for 100 people or 1,000 people than sing for one person. One person's super awkward. And no, I will not do it here. Um, Singing for lots of people is just a blob, you know? Um, It's just like, especially if like uh, when I only wore glasses, I could just take my my glasses off and I just, I wouldn't even know who y'all were. Um, There's something vague and safe about the masses for me. Some people are different about this. Some people would rather talk to one person than talk to a crowd. Um, but for me, give me crowds any day over one-to-one uh, interaction there. Um, the other thing that's interesting here is that we've we now we're getting this phrase that he's using a few times, which is his brother. And I want to talk about that word for a second because I think for some people this might seem a little bit like an escape clause in some ways. Um so who's my brother? I don't think it's familiar. I think it's pretty obvious here. John uses this phrasing of brothers repeatedly. Um verse 14. I mean, he's like on a run of them. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And and think about where you know Peter taught on Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, on us as being children of God, this concept of adoption is here. We are adopted into God's families. That means, like it or not, if we are believers, you're all my siblings. Um, and and that comes with what it comes with. It comes with the responsibility that John puts on here to love one another. Um, verse 10, you see where he's clearly delineating these groups between children of God and children of the devil, based on what we can tell by their actions. Um, He used this kind of family imagery constantly to show our relationship to God and then our relationships to one another. So I think the most clear answer here is the church. This is, you are called to love your brothers in Christ sacrificially. But that leaves a really important question that I hope you're all asking and think that might be kind of weird. What about the people who aren't my brothers in Christ? Am I called to love them sacrificially? What do y'all think? Am I only obligated to love my brothers and sisters in Christ? Um, Am I only called to give to them? Because this is talking about material giving. y'all remember a few weeks ago where I talked about the church visible versus invisible? And we talked about how not everybody in the church Is necessarily a part of the church visible. And not everybody who is, or sorry, is part of the church invisible, those who will be in heaven one day. Um, And not everyone who's in the church invisible is necessarily in the church. And an important way to think about that is chronologically. So, how many of you got saved at some point in time by Jesus? Okay. Before that, Some of you may have been in church regularly, but I bet a lot of you weren't, okay? But you were the same person then. Does that make sense? Um, The Tuckers are about to have a baby. They have a baby. We just can't see it yet. Um, That little baby in Amanda's belly is already Elliot's sibling, okay? We just haven't met him or her yet, we don't know him or her, right? We don't know? Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, not born yet, still a sibling, okay? And still requires care. Um, I think this is another place where we follow Jesus' example. Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait until we were in the fold to die for us. Christ died for us as a means of giving us atonement with Christ. Now, obviously, we can't die sacrificially in any way, shape, or form to bring others into union with Christ. But we can love in a way that provides light to draw those to the God who can do that. We don't know who is elect. You don't know who Jesus is going to save. You don't know who are going to be your spiritual siblings. My encouragement, treat everybody like they might be. Okay? I do think you should love your brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church, in a way that is sacrificial and kind and giving, but I just don't see a reason to draw the boundaries at the church doors. I don't see that. Um, Lean out into the world. Your sacrificial love of others... Is a means of grace by which God is changing the world and declaring His glory, and and that is an honor and a privilege that we should not pass up participating in. Lastly, love is incarnate. Again, uh, so I had I was on a road trip with some buddies in college, or actually after college. I've been married at this point in time, maybe a couple of years. It was for like a friend's bachelor party weekend. We all went to a kind of a ranch out in. Uh, in the hill country of Texas. And I'm riding with a friend of mine. I think I was the only person married in the car. The guy who was getting married was in the car as well. And I think he was just he was just taking marriage advice. And he asked me just what I thought was a really weird question, which is, Nick, do you love your wife? And I figured if we're going to be weird, let's dial it up. So I was like, all right, I'll give him a weird answer. Um, sometimes... Uh, and uh i wasn't very smart back then but even then i knew that whether i loved my wife wasn't a matter of how she made me feel or my desires for her well-being whether i loved my wife was demonstrated in whether i actively demonstrated my love for her and so still today if you ask me do i love my wife sometimes and hopefully more often than i did back then um Love, again, is not this theoretical idea, this feeling we have for people. Love is practiced in action. That's what John's getting at at the end of this section. How many of y'all are married? Okay. Um, how many of you love your wives and your husbands? Right? You love your spouses. Um, how many of you would die for your spouse? How many of you would take a bullet for your spouse? Okay. But, Will you wake up in the middle of the night to comfort a crying baby? <laughs> Will you make sure the trash is taken out even if it's not your job? I got a whole list here guys. <laughs> Will you do that task that your spouse promised they would do but forgot? <laughs> Will you do these things without grumbling or complaining or scorekeeping? Will you eat with discipline and exercise consistently to keep your body healthy and attractive for your spouse? Will you practice self-control? Will you work diligently? Now, I know, how many of y'all are not married? Okay? I know that sometimes we married people can forget y'all exist when we're in church settings, so I want to make sure we don't do that. So I'm going to get some. I got some for y'all too. Will you befriend the outcast? Or are your relational aspirations reserved for those in a higher social circle than your own? Will you listen to a friend's problems even when you know they tend to ramble on and repeat themselves? Will you suffer with that friend rather than just slap a Bible verse on their problems? Will you make sure that you complete your work in the workplace thoroughly and don't leave tasks for others to clean up? Will you overlook an offense without a lecture? Will you overlook a false accusation without feeling the need to defend yourselves? By the way, married people, you can apply all those too. To quote George Washington, dying is easy, living is harder. Living for your spouse is hard. Living for your friends is hard. It's one thing to theoretically give my life one and done and I'm in heaven. It's another thing to day after day after day, after day, die to self. You know, I was thinking about this. I was like, I bet you one of the reasons why, you know, when, when Paul is talking about in, is it Philippians where he's talking about how he, he doesn't know whether he'd rather go to be heaven or, or be on earth. I know he's talking about like fellowship with Christ in heaven, but part of me thinks he's got like the Corinthians and the Galatians in the back of his mind. He's like, I, if I could just go to heaven, if I could just go be with Jesus, Because these people, right? (laughs) Like, I got to think that's in there somewhere. It's somewhere in the back of his mind. Um, John here is explicitly contrasting hollow, sentimental, cheap love with costly, real, demonstrated, practical love. Um, He's not living in some world of sentimentality. These are practical verses. He even says... In verse 18, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So that word or talk, that talk is cheap love, is contrasted with true love, meaning this is false love. If all I do is say that I love you and I don't ever demonstrate that in my actions, I'm a liar. I'm telling you I love you, but I don't really love you. This is a big verse. This is my, like, action verse for pops, by the way, is we all, we dads all say we love our kids and we love our wives. We love our families, but do we do the things that show that we love our families and how do we do that? All right. I only left myself six minutes on this and I just kind of left this open-ended at the end here because I wasn't sure how long I wanted to talk about this because I could either go for five or 20. Practical application point. How many of you were excited a week and a half ago or so when uh, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade? I was. What are you going to do about it? How do we, as a church, as individuals, how do we respond to what will more than likely be an increase in crisis pregnancies that aren't going to go away? What are we going to do? Um, As I figure, our response to these situations, we have three options. Uh, The first one is uh, they should have thought about that before they got pregnant. And let me just say, I sure hope you appreciate the fact that that is not what God said about you. You should have thought about that before you sinned. You should have thought about that before you rebelled. Um, We have been beneficiaries of mercy. Not just sacrificial love, like we're talking about here, but I'm talking mercy. God looking at us and saying, you did stupid, and I love you anyway, and i lean in to rescue you, okay? We have been recipients of mercy, and we are called to pay that mercy forward, Just as Christ's sacrificial love is exemplary, his mercy and his understanding and his graciousness is set forth for us as an example. So that is not an option for us. I'm just going to tell you that right now. Um, You may also say, and some of you, depending on where you sit politically, I'm not going to get political on here at all. You may say this is the government's job to support and to to step in and care. And I will, we can talk through the extent, I think there's some degree to which that's probably true, and um, we can talk through the extent to which and the lines and the, and the actual policies of that. Um, but I want to point out that if the government should do that, it is because it's the right thing to do. And if it's the right thing to do, then it's the godly thing to do. And if it's the godly thing to do, then it's the churchly thing to do. We are called to imitate Christ, so to say that somebody else should do something is to say that it is the right thing to do, which means that we should be doing it. Do y'all follow that logic? Okay, we don't get to push this off onto somebody else exclusively. So the third option is the church should step up and serve. That's us. That's you. That's me. James one twenty seven: religion that is pure and undefiled before God the father is this to visit widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Um, I mean, my wife and I were talking about this this week, some amount of conviction that we haven't been more involved to this point to be fully transparent with you guys. Um, y'all a church we have, we have one foster family in this church. Do you know that? The Vogels? There uh, and Ashley, and they're about to adopt their little girl, and so they probably will not be foster parents right after that. Uh, a church our size should have more than one foster family. And it may not be you, but a church our size should have more than one. Um, and if that's not you, I mean, maybe it is you. Are you willing to do the hard work of fostering, of adopting kids from hard places, of supporting crisis pregnancies, of doing... Crisis pregnancy counseling of giving abundantly and sacrificially and, and in a way that hurts to accept some suffering from somebody else onto yourself and transfer some of your ease to them, which is the definition of love. It is a, a suffering for ease transfer. We have worked so hard to make this illegal, are we willing to do the work to make it unnecessary? Is my question. Um, beyond posting snarky Facebook memes. If, if you, if every time you posted a snarky meme on social media, it put $10 in an account to give to crisis pregnancies, would it surpass your actual giving? Let me just ask you that. Um, Are we going to live in some fantasy world where every kid is born into a perfect, whole, loving home? Or are we going to actively work towards that end? Are we going to love our neighbors? Are we going to pretend that we already live in heaven? (laughs) Like, are we going to pretend that we live in a world that is not broken or Are we going to be a glimpse of that unbroken world to the people around us? Are we going to sacrifice as Christ gave his life for us? Are we going to give of our lives in a costly way that reveals that love of Jesus to people who need temporary, temporal, earthly refuge and eternal refuge? Are we willing to do that? Um... I implore every single one of you to consider in this specific way how you can demonstrate the love of Jesus. Um, it's a big deal. It's not going in a way. Because I will tell you what, guys. The world's perception of you and of me is that we don't care about kids once they're born. And whether that's true or not, for them, perception is reality. And it is up to you and to me to alter that perception. And just like we discussed last week, they may see our good works and still hate us. That's not our business to worry about the response. Our job is to reflect the love of Jesus and to change the narrative of how we reflect his love for the world not some little club that we're a part of. So that is my takeaway application. Consider, discuss with your spouse, discuss with your kids. How can we love people better in this specific area? Um, Because I think we can make a huge difference as a church local, as a church global, if we really lean into this. Because look, 200 years ago, Slavery was the norm. And like it, I mean, again, histories diverge in some of these things, but the reality is uh, you look at your William Wilberforces in England, um, and here, the abolition movement was led by the church. Um, Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's make this unnecessary. Let's make it unthinkable. Uh, Let's love people. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, for your life, God, that you give us. You give us your life, Lord. I pray that we would give that life to others, Lord. That in tangible, real ways, we would experience. We'd welcome the suffering of our bodies. We'd welcome the physical and financial cost—the cost of work, the cost of time, the cost of money, the cost of energy the cost of mental mental workload, Lord, that we would demonstrate your love to others, that we would call all men unto you, Lord, that we would relieve the burdens of those suffering, that we would take the world's goods that John talks about and distribute them wisely and generously and sacrificially and immoderately, Lord, Lord, to bring your glory onto the earth by opening men's eyes to your goodness and kindness and love and mercy. Lord, thank you that you invite us into the work of ministry. Um, Lord, that you entrust us with that duty. Lord, it is an honor and is a privilege. Lord, help us to walk in that manner. In Jesus' name, amen.